Welcome to Breaking Green, a podcast by Global Justice Ecology Project. On Breaking Green, we will talk with activists and experts to examine the intertwined issues of social, ecological, and economic injustice. We will also explore some of the more outrageous proposals to address climate and environmental crises that are falsely being sold as green. I am your host, Steve Taylor. In December of 2022, at the 15th meeting of the Conference of Parties to the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity that was held in Montreal, 188 countries adopted a new global biodiversity framework. The framework has been touted as a sweeping agreement to protect 30% of the planet's land and oceans by the year 2030. Although the agreement mentions partnership with indigenous people, numerous environmental and human rights groups have been critical of it for placing the greatest burden on indigenous people who are the least responsible for biodiversity loss instead of addressing the real causes of the crisis, those which are especially found in the global north. Pointing to research that shows 80% of biodiversity is found on indigenous lands, Survival International criticized the agreement, arguing that the best way to protect biodiversity is to protect the land rights of indigenous people instead of banning those who have historically lived in harmony with the land from their ancestral homes and livelihoods. On this episode of Breaking Green, we will talk with Fiore Longo of Survival International, an organization formed in 1969 to promote the rights of indigenous people as contemporary societies with a right to self-determination. Fiore Longo is a campaigner at Survival International. She is also director of Survival International France and Spain. She coordinates Survival's conservation campaign and has visited many communities in Africa and Asia that face human rights abuses in the name of conservation. She is joining us from Paris, Fiore Longo, welcome to Breaking Green. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, Fiore, you you are a campaigner for Survival International, which was formed in 1969. Could you tell us about that organization in general and how you became a part of it? Wow, yes, Survival was born in 1969. Uh, I was, of course, not born in 1969, um, it, it, it has been uh, all more than 50 years um, that my colleagues have been fighting uh, for indigenous people's rights. Um, the organization um, was actually uh, created by, a, by, by the idea uh, of a British uh, journalist called uh, Norman Lewis. And he uh, reported what was going on in Brazil at that time where indigenous peoples were being killed and abused and their rights were being violated. Um, and, and he reported this through um, uh, the newspaper he was working with, uh, the Sunday Times. But uh, what I wanted to say that he reported this through the idea that what was going on was a genocide. And that was the title of the, or, the, the origin of survival, um, this news item called genocide. It was one of the first time that this word was used for indigenous peoples and what, what, they were, what, what was happening there. And it was then that a group of also British people decided that, um, shocked by what they read, to do something about it. And the idea was that um, it was necessary to inform uh, the public opinion, to explain them what was going on, 
but also to fight against racism and against the stereotypes that at that time were used to describe indigenous peoples and their way of life. For example, they were uh, called primitive, backwards, and other kind of, of, of words. And so since the beginning, Survival has been an organization with first goal is change public opinion uh, in favor of indigenous people's rights. And since that moment, 1969 until now, this is what we try to do. We uh, visit indigenous communities and we collect evidence of human rights abuses. We come back uh, to Europe, especially also the US where we have office, and we try to inform the general public of the terrible abuses these people are facing. We fight against racism, but we also try to show how wonderful these societies are. They are not primitive, they are all contemporary and have a lot of things to teach us. And this is what we try, we try to do. We conduct legal action against multinational corporations that are violating indigenous rights. We push governments uh, to recognize their land. All of these through the mobilization of public opinion. Uh, and this is this is exactly the reason why I decided to join Survival, uh, because different from a lot of other NGOs that I have been uh, working with, um, we are not going to the global south or to indigenous people's land and tell them what to do and bring them development or, or explain them something. We are here to stop the atrocities that our own society is committing. We try to decolonize the way that we ourselves see conservation, for example. We try to fight the racism that is here, not somewhere else. And I found out, uh, I found that at the time when I joined the organization seven years ago, so different. Survival, I think it's so different. We don't receive any money from any corporation that violates human rights, neither from governments or intergovernmental organizations like the World Bank. We are completely independent. And, and the, the core of our work is advocacy and is education. Um, as a young anthropologist, I, I study anthropology, and when I joined the organization, uh, this is what, what what I was searching for. I was searching for an organization that didn't um, try to bring something to others, but to stop the own the atrocities that ourselves we commit here without sometimes without knowing it. And that's why I decided to join. So I think it's so so different from any other organization. It's uncompromised and radical, and 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 really gives a platform to speak to the world, to indigenous people themselves. What we try to do is that to create a world in which they, they themselves, indigenous peoples, can determine their own future, can decide by themselves what they want to be. So at the 2022 Global Conference on Biodiversity in Montreal, about 190 countries agreed to a plan to protect 30% of the planet's land and oceans by 2030. At first blush, this sounds like a very good idea and a way to address the ongoing loss of biodiversity, which is occurring at an alarming rate. But Survival International, along with other organizations, opposed this proposal. Yes, and I hope that when I finish explaining, everyone else who thought this was a good idea <laughs> change opinion. Um, it sounds, I agree, it sounds like a great idea. Um, our world is facing biodiversity loss, um, a terrible biodiversity loss rates. Um, our world is facing climate crisis, environmental crisis. And then as magic, this idea of turning the 30% of the world into protected areas arrived to the table. And a lot of people think, wow, wow, what, it, what there is, what, what could be wrong in in the idea of um, fencing off piece of nature. 
uh, where only animals can live. And to understand this, we have to uh, take a step back and think where the idea came from. Because we are discussing today, and it has been adopted actually, um, an idea that comes from colonial times. Actually, um, the first national parks are not um, done in the colonies, are done in the US. Yosemite and Yellowstone and all the other parks that follow at the end of the 19th century were the first national parks, were created with the idea that nature is wild, of the idea of wilderness, and that we can only protect nature by fencing off a little bit of a piece of nature and not allowing human beings to live inside. But what we could see since the beginning of this idea that those human beings that were not allowed to live inside these protected areas were the people that were living there, the indigenous peoples that have been shaping this environment that we think they are wild for generations. And at the same time, what we can see is that Yosemite and Yellowstone all of a sudden transformed themselves into a place for tourists. And this is the basis of protected area. Indigenous peoples and local communities that people that were considered primitive are not allowed anymore to live in their ancestral lands that are now considered wild, despite the fact that they have been shaping and nourishing this environment, while wealthy tourists can access. This idea then is exported in, um, in Africa and Asia during the colonization. And again, Europeans blame the local population for the biodiversity loss that Europeans themselves were creating. Europeans were hunting, they were exploiting resources, they were hunting for sport, and they were exploiting the resources, and biodiversity was declining. And nevertheless, Europeans blame Africans and create protected areas where Africans couldn't access anymore. But those lands were their ancestral lands of those people. And they're not just that they were living there. Indigenous peoples and local communities, even today, are doing things to nourish this environment. It's not by chance that the 80% of biodiversity, the 80%, is found on indigenous people's lands. Evidence shows us that indigenous territories have less deforestation and much more biodiversity than any other area in the world. And despite this scientific evidence, today at the COP15, the idea that the solution against climate change and biodiversity loss is creating more protected areas. So areas where human beings, like not like me and you, of course, because our protected areas are different, but the people that live in the most biodiverse areas in the world can access those lands anymore. The lands that make them who they are, because there is a strong connection between indigenous peoples that could be, I don't know, uh, think about pastoral societies or, or hunter-gatherers. There is a strong connection between them and the land. And in the name of conservation, these parks are created. These people that are the least responsible for environmental destruction are now banned. They can't access the land anymore. They lose their means of subsistence, their means of existence too. While wealthy tourists and also trophy hunters and also sometimes destructive industries are welcome inside these protected areas. I know it's a difficult reality to imagine because for us, a protected area is something else. But this is the reality on the ground. The reality on the ground is that conservation organizations like WWF or WCS are creating parks for wealthy people. And these parks are militarized, are like gigantic zoos where we go and pay to see the wonderful animals, while the local population that took care of the environment 
is evicted and is tortured and abused by the park rangers that are protecting the parks against the local people. This is why we oppose this idea of 30%. We think that it will double the number of abuses that we already have been reporting for years. We have been documenting these abuses for years in protected areas, but it also is a dangerous distraction because we know that you can't fence off nature. You can't fence off nature from climate change. You can't fence off nature from the uh, exploitation that, that our own society is doing. If we don't tackle the real cause of biodiversity loss, there are overconsumption, the use of pesticides, climate change, we're not going to solve any problem, even if we fence off some 30%. Climate change doesn't get, doesn't have borders. And we have today, for example, there are lots of animals that are dying also uh, for, for, the, uh, the, for climate change inside protected areas, for example, in Kenya. So the, the idea just to, to fence off a part of nature and abracadabra, the, the problem is solved, is actually not based on science. I have in front of me here a uh, press release from uh, Survival International, and I believe it quotes you saying that the conference on biodiversity failed to take the bold step required to really protect nature, to recognize that indigenous peoples are the best conservationists and that the best way to protect biodiversity is to protect their land rights. Wasn't there a an attempted intervention by indigenous peoples to have indigenous lands recognized as as part of the, I guess, so-called conservation effort? Yeah, yes. Um, so uh, survival, survival position since the beginning was that we uh, don't want 30%. Whatever it says, uh, we thought... It's just an invention. There's no science behind. Uh, the, only, the key person that created this 30% idea said it himself. This is arbitrary. Um, there is no science. So, and, and it's going to end up giving millions of dollars to conservation organizations already complicit into human rights abuses. They will give them more money. And nothing is going to, be, um, uh, nothing is going to, to happen for that biodiversity, while a lot of human rights abuses will happen. This was our position. Um, but it, at the same time, uh, we knew that um, the 30% at one point, they told us this is going to happen. Europeans want it's going to happen. And we heard that indigenous, the, the, there is an indigenous caucus, so the, the indigenous group inside the CBD, that is as an advisory um, group, um, told at one point, uh, explicitly ask for indigenous territories to be counted as a third category together with OACM, which is other effective conservation measures, and protected areas into the target. So the target would have been 30% of land and oceans are protected under protected areas, OACM, or indigenous territories. This would have been a big revolution and a big problem because, as Europeans pointed out, if the indigenous people's territories are counted, the target doesn't make any sense. It's already achieved. And of course, Europeans wanted to come back to home and tell their uh, vote, the, the people that vote to them, we had a great agreement. We, the 30% is going to be a protected area. So this didn't happen. They rejected, especially the European countries, rejected the possibility for indigenous territories to be counted as a category of um, um, prote uh, protection of biodiversity. While we know, and this is the thing that for me 
is actually more uh, dangerous. We know that the, those territories are today indigenous territories. That means territories that are recognized as indigenous, so are demarcated or recognized. We know it today that they have less deforestation and more biodiversity, even when we compare it to classic protected areas. So the science is there to tell this is a great idea. Indigenous territories should be a key mechanism of biodiversity protection. And nevertheless, the lobbying of the big conservation organizations, because in that case they wouldn't get all the money to do their protected areas, won the game. There is nevertheless a lot of language on indigenous rights in the target. And as we, if we compare the target three at the target that has been done 10 years ago, that was the 17% of the world should be protected in underprotected areas. So we have we can see there is a real improvement. Indigenous rights are there. And this was thanks to our campaign and, and, and the struggles of other indigenous peoples and other NGOs. So there is uh, the requirement, protected areas, the 30% will be done respecting indigenous peoples' rights. And there is also a new section as a condition um, called conditions of implementation or something like that that says clearly that they, any target has to respect indigenous people's rights as they are in the UN convention, in the UN declaration. So all of this is good. But at the same time, it shows us how much the colonial mentality, how much Europeans wanted their own NGOs and their own government deciding how the protection of nature should look like. That is still there. We, we, we didn't manage, together with indigenous peoples, to get this convention recognizing that only lands rights for indigenous peoples can actually achieve conservation goals better than protected areas, especially. That we, we, we lost that battle, I would say. <laughs> you had mentioned the WWF and some uh, other large NGOs and uh, their uh, colonial conservation model. Let's talk a little bit of what that might look like to some indigenous cultures. In particular, uh, could you speak on the brutality of the Congolese wildlife guards and, and what's really happening there and, and, and maybe some of what, what has happened in India? Yes. Um, yeah, I am, I am a field researcher among um, um, other things I do. Uh, so my work consists in visiting communities um, of indigenous peoples. In this case, I can tell my experience in the Congo and in India. So I did that by myself, and that's what I'm going to tell you is first-hand information. Um, and, and, and just, yeah, to, to link to the, uh, the question before, I, I would just going to explain you how different it would look like if in the target there was 30% territory. So, and what would actually happening now and what is going to happen in the future. So if the target would have included indigenous territories, uh, a government of Congo, the government of Congo, for example, to achieve the 30% target, could have gone through protected areas or could have gone through the recognition of indigenous territories. So the Baka, which is the indigenous peoples that I work with, uh, they are hunter-gatherers and they live in the Congo Basin forest. It's the second biggest forest in the world after the Amazon. They could have gone to the government and say, we are going to protect this place. Uh, I want that you recognize our rights. And the government say, great, I'm going to achieve my 30% target. We will do it. But now what is going to happen is what is happening now. WWF goes to the Congolese government and says, we love this area, it's full of elephants, and uh, the forest is untouched, it's pristine. Which is a lie, but that's what they say. 
and then they lobbied the government. The government recognized the existence of a national park and gave the handle, the managing the powers to WWF. The WWF managed the park. And this is what happened in this park I visit, Mesopja, in the north of Congo. I visit several parks and all of them are, the story is quite the same. But I thought this was very interesting because this park was in the process of being created. Why I say this? Because usually when we complain about a park uh, and a park that doesn't have the consent of the people, WWF said the park has been created in the 70s. There was no legislation at that time. So that this park is, is 2019. I'm going there. The park is being created. The Baka people, hunter-gatherers, are all outside the forest. And I wonder why, and I ask questions, and they tell me that because usually the hunter-gatherers live inside the forest for one part of the year, another part of the year outside the forest. And they tell me they can't access the forest anymore. The forest has been taken, they tell me. And I ask by whom, and they say by WWF. The park rangers that have come and, and in, a, in a jeep that has the logo of WWF, whose uniforms are paid by WWF, their phones, uh, their office, uh, their, their salaries, all of this is paid by WWF, not the Congolese government. All these park rangers, every time they try to go inside the forest to hunt, because they are hunter-gatherers, and to collect vegetables, they are stopped and they are arrested and they are abused, said the women are raped, the men are put into jail for months and only begin given to eat a, a spoon of rice. I uh, travel all around this Mesokja and I visit dozens of dozens of villages. I sit down and the story was one and once again the same story. They are accused, the Baka, of hunting, of, of being poachers. They do hunt elephants, but they do it in a ritual way they only hunt certain kind of elephants in certain times of the year. There are a lot of elephants where the baka are. The baka are not the responsible of the um, extinction of elephants. There is a problem with the, with the ivory, of course, but those are not the baka. The UN show us today with data that come from the UN that the real responsibles of the poaching networks are corrupted officials. And, and nothing to do with the baka who have always been living in that forest. The elephant has always been there. And they do things to nourish the forest. For example, they will go inside the forest and they will collect uh, this uh, yam, uh, wild yam, but they don't collect it all. They leave the roots in the floor, in the, in the soil, so they, they can spread this, the, the yam can spread in the forest. And the yam is the favorite food of the elephants. That's why there are so many elephants where they are back up. So the back up, take care of the forest. They, they nourish the forest, they manage the forest. But they are being accused and they're being raped and they are killed and abused by park rangers um, framed as we are fighting against poaching. At the same time, we see that the real poachers are, are sometimes the same park rangers uh, paid by WWF. There are sometimes uh, corrupted officials. Uh, nothing is happening to them. And at the same time, we see that the logging concessions that are all around this protected area are destroying the trees, not only uh, uh, logging concessions, but also uh, palm oil concessions, are all giving money to this park, giving money to WWS project. And the project is taking the money. And so instead of fighting real causes of um, the forest destruction, we see WWF 
partnering with these loggers and these uh, oil companies and um, framing as uh, poachers the people that are the least responsible for the environmental destruction. This story, I could tell exactly the same story in Kenya, in Tanzania, in Cameroon, in every place I have been. In India, it's exactly the same story, a little bit different in the sense that WWF has a less important role. They are, of course, involved in conservation there, but they are not paying their salary, the salaries of the park rangers. They are doing other things. Uh, but it's the same story. We have been traveling uh, uh, from north to south of India, east, west, uh, visiting the so-called tiger reserves, where you see indigenous peoples being evicted. In that case, there are not even hunters. Indigenous peoples in India are usually practicing agriculture or or collect, uh, collecting fruits. And nevertheless, they are being evicted, accused of harming the tiger, which they don't do because they believe it's a sacred figure. And tourists, and, and this you can really see, mass tourists is welcome. They're building hotels inside the protected area. There are jeeps that come, go and uh, outside and in. And at the same time, again, indigenous peoples are being accused of being poachers, park rangers, um, injured. Uh, uh, when I was there at that time, he was 70, 70 years old, so now he would be a little bit more, but uh, they, they injure a kid uh, that now can't walk anymore, uh, accused, of course, of being a poacher. He was seven years old when he was shot. They killed another very young guy um, who went inside one of the tiger reserves to follow his cow. So the level of abuse that these people are, are um, facing in the name of nature protection. So we can go there and take pictures of tigers and be in the jeeps is absolutely inhuman. It, it, it seems as if these conservation efforts, so-called conservation efforts, focus on removing indigenous cultures who have the least, the least responsibility when it comes to loss of biodiversity or climate change, but yet they allow forced forestry uh, concessions in, they allow extractive industries in, and at the same time, uh, really not addressing what's going on in the global north. Uh, I, I, I don't hear about my land uh, or, or my home, our subdivision, our, our city being placed in a, in, in a protected area to bring back biodiversity. But yet, you know, these companies uh, in, in the global north are, are buying uh, carbon offsets. And, and, and now we can point to how uh, there's these efforts uh, on paper to, to uh, protect species. It, it seems to have a disproportionate impact on those least responsible for both cl- uh, climate change and the loss of biodiversity. In survival, we are clear about this. Yes, we need to protect indigenous people's rights. Also, not only because they are the best um, uh, conservationists, but that doesn't change at all the status of their human rights. But at the same time, the real causes of biodiversity loss are here. There's no need to look somewhere else and go to try to transform Africa into a park. The environmental destruction has its roots here. It's what we do, how we consume how we produce. And we can't do conservation if we don't start doing the conservation here. And not as a thing that has to do with animals and biology, but a thing that has to do with social and economical structure, which the name of the thing we are talking about is capitalism. So I I also get uh, quite angry when I see this um, UN um, 
people going around saying we are uh, humanities in war with nature. Uh, humanity is a weapon of extinction. It's like, wait a second, it's not humanity who is a weapon of extinction. Uh, it's capitalism. And you have to call it with the name. They, they have names. They call Dow Chemicals, Total, Unilever, because not all humanity is in war against nature. And I think it's very, uh, uh, this is, they divert the attention. People think all oh, humans are horrible. Well, I have seen humans that were not horrible. I have seen humans that live perfectly uh, fine in a sustainable way in nature. I have seen some of them, you know, hunting in a sustainable way. I have seen indigenous people collecting honey without harming the trees. Um, it's not all humanity that destroys nature. And I think this is something that it's all, all of this is put as something abstract and generic, uh, where it's not. It's not abstract and generic. It has a name. It is rooted here. We are the ones destroying here with a way of life, the world. And this is the thing that we should be doing and thinking and addressing before creating more protected areas in the global south. I, I believe it's Survival International's position that even the language we use uh, around these conservation topics uh, have uh, uh, colonial denotations or connotations. Could you uh, talk a little bit about that? We think that conservation today is still colonialist. In the way that it's done, in the language it uses, and in the consequences it has. Uh, why? Because as in colonial times, protected areas are stealing the land of indigenous peoples in the name of conservation. I explained it before. This is where conservation comes from. It comes from the colonial times. The idea was to blame local population for the populations, for the uh, environmental destruction the colonizers themselves were causing and create these parks where only the colonizers could access. So they could they could do research they could ha do trophy hunting. They could do tourism. Since the beginning, that's how conservation looked like. With the end of colonization, uh, WWF was born, 1961. And the idea was that now that colonization was not there and the Africans didn't have a clue about how to protect their own environment, experts from the Western world uh, will be helping them. That's what WWF used to do. They fund experts uh, to go there and explain Africans how to save the nat nature. This idea that we know best, uh, we know better than indigenous peoples and that local communities, and then only we can explain them and can and have the science and have whatever is necessary to protect nature is, is still there. It's exactly the same behavior that today we found in the conference of the COP15. We think that protected areas are good, even if science tells us they are not. And we think that are better than indigenous territories because protected areas are managed by our, our own NGOs. So it's always this white savior idea. We white people are going to explain everyone else how to do things right. Uh, this is still the case for conservation today. Still today, the model is based on absolute racism. Indigenous peoples don't know what they're doing. And still is based on the... Uh, denial of the role that indigenous people had in shaping the environment. They are the reason why the 80% of biodiversity is in their territory. There is a still, it's a still conservation full of prejudice, stereotypes, unscientific uh, assumptions uh, based on, on, on really mythology. That's what we used to say. 
And this is communicated with the language and with images. So, for example, we are all used to see uh, and to think, I guess, my generation, I don't know others, but I uh, grew up with The Lion King, uh, so the Disney movie. And then you can see beautiful Simba going around this wonderful escape, uh, landscape that is empty of humans. There are no humans in the movie. There are only animals. Well, the real set of that movie is a national park in Kenya called the Hell Gate, where the Maasai were evicted uh, in the 80s. So there were people living there. The reason why you don't see it in the film is because they have been evicted. Nature is not wild. It's not empty. It has been emptied. That is different. People were living there and were taking care, and then they were evicted. Uh, today, inside the national park, we have a geothermal uh, central so that produce um, electricity, but the Maasai are not allowed to live inside. And nevertheless, the images we, they come to us are uh, these wild spaces. Um, not long ago, Obama narrated a documentary in Netflix uh, called uh, Our Greatest National Parks. Well, the greatest national parks where Obama went and there were no people were actually uh, shaped and, and created by the interaction between human beings and the environment, but those people have been evicted. And the images that we see and this idea of untouched nature, virgin nature, make us think that those places were like this and that humans can only destroy nature. All this language, all the time talking about wilderness, uh, make, us, make us really think that nature is wild. And that's why we think that the language is so colonialist, because land was portrayed as wild, as empty, so it could be taken by us. Uh, and, and, and it's not true. People, were, people are everywhere. <laughs> people have been living in those, in those spaces. So usually we call poachers everyone that has black skin and is hunting. Whatever this hunting is for feeding his family or for selling it somewhere else. It's all poachers. While the white people hunting for sport are hunters. So why, why is that different? What is the difference between game meat and, and bush meat? They're actually no different. The difference is in the color of the skin. Uh, people, uh, you, Europeans will eat uh, meat that is, has been hunted and it's called uh, game meat. The Africans are uh, supposed to eat bush meat because it portrays a negative idea that they, they did poaching to get it. So the language we use actually portray this, these ideas that come from colonial times uh, and that they are racist. The idea that local people don't know what to do. They are not civilized. Uh, they can't take care of the environment. But we do. We can. Do we really know how to protect the environment? What we have done until now, if we look around ourselves or, or the, the places where we live, we realize that we have done anything. When I go to spend my time with indigenous people, I can really see that whatever they are doing is working. What do you think uh, uh, a more legitimate response to the loss of biodiversity would look like? So what is the solution? Um, I do think there is not one solution. I, I think, and I also think the solution won't come from us. Um, I think that we have to be humble enough to understand that we are clearly not good <laughs> into, in, in the thing of protecting nature. But a couple of things I could say is that we can't, uh, a real nature protection can't be separate from a change in economy and society. We can't think about nature protection or climate change 
that is something that only uh, is only belongs to the field of biology, of animals and plants. Nature is what we do for living. It's, it's the thing outside us that we need to live. And so if we want to change our interaction with nature, we have to change the way we live. Um, I also believe that we have to look carefully at which are the drivers of biodiversity loss. We know today that is overconsumption. So we have to address that. How you address that? We have to put regulations to multinational corporations, for example. Um, we have to um, look at the use of pesticides. It's another thing. Climate change, so stop emissions. Uh, a, a real biodiversity loss framework should be addressing the biodiversity dri loss drivers, which are this. We, we know we, we, what, what is causing um, the, the extinction of animals, the loss of habitat that is caused by industrialization. But the most important thing, other than what we are doing, is also badly, is what other people are doing well. And when we look at the data again, we see that indigenous peoples are performing better. So for me, the reply is clear. Recognize and respect their rights to the land. Where, where there are a lot of places where these uh, mechanisms exist already, Latin America, in which you, we could easily help indigenous communities to demarcate their territories and get the right recognized. In other countries, this framework doesn't exist, so we should be helping indigenous people to get this framework recognized, so the law, international law recognized. It's not really very difficult, and actually it would be much less expensive than giving money to conservation NGOs to pay their salaries to pretend protecting nature. But, of course, this would make a shift in power, because land rights are always a very, very, very <laughs> delicate topic, uh, this would mean that indigenous people are in control of their own lands. And of course, a lot of governments don't want that. We don't want that. And finally, just to say something positive that the US have been doing, I think that what we need also is very good and strong legislation to put, um, uh, to stop the abuses in the name of conservation. Because if we keep doing what we are doing, we are alienating indigenous communities and, and, and we will end up having an opposition uh, to nature protection from, from the same local communities that see their lands destroyed just because WWF like elephants or, or like whatever, uh, rhinos or whatever other animals. So I think that an important legislation should be put in place to stop at least public money, which is something that we can control, public money going to organizations that violate human rights. The US is in a good um, position because they passed recently a law in the House of Representatives, so it's, it's in the Senate now. It's not co uh, signed by the president yet, but the law passed the House of Representatives that um, is trying to uh, stop abuses happening with um, USA Fish and Wildlife uh, Service money um, in the sector of conservation. So it's a very good law. It's not perfect, as no law is. It's a compromise. It's a bipartisan law, but it's already a start. And they did a very important hearing uh, before the law was uh, discussed, in which, for the first time in the history, conservation abuses, in particular the ones of WWF, were uh, shown to the public. I thought it was a historical moment, the first time that in a political field, WWF and conservation are actually accused and 
shown to have violated human rights. And I thought this was a very important moment. Fiore Longo, thank you for joining Breaking Green. Thank you again for inviting, ma- uh, inviting us. It's so important for us to be uh, able to reach uh, the general public with, with this, because as I said, unfortunately, uh, most of people don't know what is going on in the name of conservation. You have been listening to Breaking Green, a global justice ecology project podcast. To learn more about Global Justice Ecology Project, visit globaljusticeecology.org. Breaking Green is made possible by tax-deductible donations by people like you. Please help us lift up the voices of those working to protect forests, defend human rights, and expose false solutions. Simply text GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 1-716-257-4187. That's 1-716-257-4187.